0: Welcome to the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Marianne Mendoza, the founder of angelfamilies.org and Angel Mom. And today we've got a lot to talk about regarding Biden's chaotic border policies and how that's affecting people in the United States of America. Marianne Mendoza, welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You have a terrific organization that's helping a lot of people. Would you tell us about Angel Families and how you got started?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when my son was killed... In May of 2014, I you know, was kind of at, at odds, and we were with a couple of other organizations. I met other angel families, but we really felt like we needed an organic organization that really was made up of angel families, angel moms, dads, brothers, sisters, and um, kind of lead our own destiny of where we wanted to go with sharing our stories. So that's why I formed Angel Families, and... It's been comforting to all of us because leaders or founders of other organizations had really never experienced what we had. There's a, there's not a worse club you could be a part of or an organization you could be a part of, really. You know, we don't want to welcome new members, obviously. But with this administration, it's happening more and more. But it's amazing how many people don't want to speak up for the fear of being called a racist or xenophobic or the lit- litany of names goes on and on and on. So the rest of us who do speak up try and keep the public aware of what's happening.
0: Tell us a little bit about the function of angelfamilies.org and, and how you interact with your members.
1: Well, we're there to support each other. You know, the dates come around of birthdays, of holidays, of the date of, you know, the unfortunate Um, Event that took a loved one from a family. And so we support each other like that. I try and keep people, when I get calls from certain states, you know, who want somebody to participate in an event or speak at an event, I usually reach out to those families who are closer to those events and keep them on the go with telling their story themselves. And everybody has each other's phone numbers. We're just there, you know, if you have a rough day where you have a couple of angel moms who are dealing with trials coming up. And so we're a big support system of each other while those trials are going on. And unfortunately with the Biden administration at ICE, we had a liaison there through the voice office who kept us abreast of cases. And if these illegals were moved from, you know, one jail or prison site to another and when their deportation date was happening. And so we had a, a way of having closure. But with the new administration, we don't have that any any longer. So supporting each other is more important now than ever.
0: Marianne, I think it's very important whenever we have these conversations to know something about the victim here and to know about your son, Sergeant Brandon Mendoza, whom you lost tragically. Would you tell us about him, the man uh, that you lost in your life, your son? It's just so tragic.
1: Brandon was my third of four children. He just was an amazing man and an amazing son and an incredible brother. You know, when we lost him, it was was like a spoke of our will was gone. What was super amazing about my son is the things that he did for the community and for people that I wasn't even aware of. And after his passing, the outpour of love and support from the community and the stories that I was hearing he was assigned to a area of mesa that had a lot of crime and a lot of gangs and a lot of drugs and they had kind of taken over the park in the middle of this neighborhood a lot of homeless people he was assigned that area to clean it up he took on a modern day beat cop attitude and went door to door and met everybody down there and got what their concerns were about their neighborhood and worked with um homeless shelters and got the homeless people situated and out of the out of the park and then went to work to get gang members and drug dealers out of the park and slowly you know worked with the city of Mesa to get new playground equipment and they ended up agreeing to do a ball field in the middle of the park because a lot of the young kids in that area played baseball and ultimately they ended up naming it Mendoza Park after he passed away but Um, There was a Boys and Girls Club in that neighborhood, and he worked tirelessly with those children, would meet them at the park and play kickball with them on Saturdays, spent his own money and bought Christmas gifts for some of the kids. The families weren't fortunate enough to be able to afford Christmas for the children. It just warmed my heart. You know, I spent a lot of time at the Boys and Girls Club afterwards carrying on his tradition of a Thanksgiving dinner for that community and warmed my heart, all these children that came up and told me things that my son had done for them. It reinforced in me what a caring, loving man he was and and how that just kind of flowed into his job as an officer.
0: Yeah, what a wonderful legacy that he leaves behind. I want to ask you about the the surrounding situation, how he lost his life, and then what happened in the immediate aftermath of this because it's very instructive. People may have a different impression about how these things are handled, and you've had an awful experience.
1: Right. May 12, 2014, uh, Brandon was on his way home. It was the early morning hours. He was hit head-on by somebody driving the wrong way um, an illegal, on our freeways in the HOV lane. Head-on, hit, hit this man was going 104 miles an hour when he hit my head, my son head-on. He had been drinking all day, was high on meth, so he was over three times the legal limit drunk. You know, the first phone call I got was at about 3 o'clock in the morning from Afghanistan, a fellow police officer who was Air National Guard and was deployed at the time. Kind of gave me a heads-up that he had been in an accident, didn't know much of the details, And I got off the phone and kept trying to call his cell phone, and he wasn't answering, and then the doorbell rang. So they took me down to the hospital, and about 15, 20 minutes after I arrived, he died in surgery. He was just injured and so mangled. It's a day no mother ever wants to experience. So it was probably, a, you know, the, that whole week was just a whirlwind with his funeral because, you know, it was a police officer and they kind of took over everything, you know, planning it all. And probably about two weeks into it that I realized that it was an illegal who had killed my son. So I started doing some research and I was really appalled at the amount of crimes that were happening and then the amount of innocent Americans killed by people who didn't belong in our country, the leniency that was shown to them in our court system you know, in my situation, I was a little more fortunate that of some of these other angel moms and dads, because the illegal was killed in the accident also. So I didn't have to go through a trial. I didn't have to go through praying that justice was going to be served. So I was spared that fortunately, but there are very unfortunate situations where these illegals kill these innocent Americans and they're given two years and, and then they're, supposed to be deported, but they're not. And so they're just released back out into our communities to go on and commit more crimes. It happens a lot.
0: You had recently written about this in, in a column I saw that was published in one of your local papers, I believe. Maybe you could give us some details on, on one of the most egregious cases that comes to mind about, you know, how many times someone has been arrested or thrown out of the country, just terrible circumstances that were not addressed. Do you have an example?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's multiple, you know, Mm -hmm. angel families that have dealt with this. I mean, even with my son's case, this illegal had committed crimes up in Colorado, Mm -hmm. um, didn't show up for his court date, which is very, very common and was on the run. And he happened to be caught at the border when he was coming back from visiting family and was sent up to Adams County, Colorado. And the judge basically just gave him a slap on the wrist and said, be a good boy. And, have a nice life and let him, let him go. So that is a repeated pattern a lot. Of course, there's many, many published stories mm-hmm. of illegals who have committed, you know, four or five, six crimes released back out and then ultimately end up killing an innocent American. But those families don't speak up. You know, the, probably the one who's, who's a part of our group, it was five crimes and continually given parole, and allowed back out into the communities. And that was over in California. And you know, you've got sanctuary, sanctuary policies, which lead up to this and they continually commit crimes and are just given a slap on the wrist and released back out North Carolina. The former governor had created a not, it was a law that was passed where North Carolina was a anti-sanctuary state. And in the midterms in 2018, there were three sheriffs that were elected in North Carolina. Sheriff McFadden was one of the ones that comes to mind. And they immediately made their counties, sanctuary counties in North Carolina. And at this time, if your listeners go to NC, which stands for North Carolina, ncfire.info, they can see there's a child rape epidemic going on in that state by illegals. and, And Sheriff McFadden is still releasing those um, illegals right back out into the community after they've been arrested for sexual assault or raping children, and they're arrested and released back out into the community until their court date, and they reoffend. That was the one thing that we fought really hard with President Trump on was to stop the sanctuary policies from happening in in cities, counties, and states because. It rewards illegals for their bad behavior and puts innocent Americans at
0: risk. The Schilling Show Unleash podcast, we're talking with Marianne Mendoza, founder of angelfamilies.org, continues in a moment. Support this podcast online at schillingshow.com. Shilling Show Unleashed. We return the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Marianne Mendoza, angelfamilies.org. So I want to get a little further into the Trump administration and how things changed. I know that you had a friendly ear there or friendly ears within this administration who were compassionate regarding the situation and wanted to see a change. So what was it like during the Trump years?
1: It was really like a... uh big rope of hope that he had sent us because his campaign started reaching out to us. You know, we were showing up at at his campaign rallies and stuff. And, and he was talking. Finally, we had somebody who was talking about this was actually saying there's illegal criminals in our country. You know, we were bolstered by this. We were like, finally, our voices are going to be heard. Something's going to be done. You know, when he was elected into office, and he included us in a lot of things that happened. I got many calls from him personally. To come to the White House when he had meetings with law enforcement and politicians regarding sanctuary policies, his administration kept us abreast of what was going on. We met with, you know, Vice President Pence uh, many times, and ICE hosted events and had us come and talk to them about policy changes that we wanted to see happen. You know, because you have politicians in D.C. who decide. This is what needs to happen. But even those politicians haven't been affected by us. And we do have, you know, thoughts about what really could could happen or laws that could could change or policies that I, they adopted some of them when his administration was in office. We know what could have prevented our children's death. We saw we've, we've you know, some of our families have been to trials and hear the, the things that go on. So that was very encouraging and very helpful and very I mean, you know, it helped us eased us through our pain because we felt like, I said, like we were finally being heard. And when the administration took over, there's absolutely no communication whatsoever, whatsoever ever. And of course, you know, opening the borders was one of his first things he did in the few hours after he took office. They've changed the voice office now to where illegals call that that office now, and they offer them help. And, and they're immediately sent over to USCIS, and USCIS immediately gives them work permits before they've even had a hearing. You know, I had many conversations when they started that office up, asking why were you doing this? And, and you know, they don't have any answers why, but the interesting thing is Mayorkas, who is a liar, he doesn't ever tell a tro- truthful thing out of his mouth, he used to work at USCIS, and then he was secretary, uh, deputy secretary at um, DHS under Obama, he knew what you know what he could do and the ins and outs and the, the way that he could get around things. So once he would made he was made Secretary of DHS. He made all these changes, and of course, Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans—they're all exempt from Title 42. And so he was just letting those citizens flood our country for sure. And now that forty Title 42 is going to go away here in the next few weeks. They're anticipating 10,000 more than that at the border every single day that they're going to be crossing our borders. I place a lot of blame on Mayorkas. Of course, you know, the direction comes from above how he's decimated DHS and really made ICE a uh, processing center for illegals instead of processing them and deporting them out of our country. It's more like a welcome center now.
0: I'm curious, Marianne, about your interaction with other politicians outside of uh, President Trump before and during his presidency. But what about your local Congress representative, uh, state representatives, state senators? What were the interactions like?
1: I really didn't interact on a state level much, but, you know, I had a huge advocate in Congressman Andy Biggs, Congressman Paul Gozar, Steve King from Iowa was a huge advocate of ours. And it was unfortunate how they cancel cultured him out. Mm -hmm. Um, Jim Jordan has been there to listen to us. Tom Tillis had me come and speak at a Senate hearing. And I have followed up many, many times on a bill that he was putting, trying to get put through that if a sanctuary city, county or state, if a sanctuary policy, had an illegal released and that illegal ended up ultimately killing an American, that that family would have the right to sue the officials who made those sanctuary policy policies happen. But a lot of times these politicians put this stuff forward and we have little press conferences. They're just doing it for attention because it may be an election year and nothing has ever followed through. And that's the unfortunate thing, you know, with some of the politicians, none of the Democrats ever met with us. one, Congressman Kennedy from Massachusetts met with me. I wasn't allowed to have pictures taken. I wasn't allowed to talk about it in the media. You know, basically, I had a conversation with him. If we offered Americans the free college tuition that you're offering illegals to work in the IT world, we would have more Americans in that, that workforce and you wouldn't have to keep giving these special visas out and providing an education and placing them into our workforce. And he was in total disagreement with me on that. You know, I met with him hoping to go in with a thread of common commonality on the immigration, the illegal immigration scene and walk away with maybe a you know piece of yarn. But they just we just don't see eye to eye on those type of things.
0: Marianne, I've often pondered this, and, and I pray that it doesn't happen, but if any of these prominent politicians who have had a closed ear to you, for example, the one that you were just referencing, uh, suffered a similar loss in a similar situation that you did and became an angel family, I honestly question whether or not that would change their public policy position. Do you have any thoughts on that? Would, would it something like that change their mind?
1: I believe so. We've had this conversation many times amongst us. You know, at the time of my son's death, the Senator McCain and Flake were our senators at the time. I never got a phone call from them. And I was in DC one time at a fair event. I had done a Breitbart radio interview and Senator Flake heard me and I had mentioned that he had never reached out to my family, especially with my son being law enforcement. His office immediately called, well actually he called me and, and wanted to meet with me later that day. And I passed him in the hallway. He was going to vote, and you know he didn't recognize me. When he came back for the meeting, I said to him, "You know, I saw your beautiful picture of your family in in your lobby, and I really want to ask you a question: Which child of yours would you choose to lose at the hands of an illegal criminal to support these sanctuary policies and and not addressing immigration reforms? You know, the way that you should have." and the meeting was abruptly canceled and I was ushered out of his office. Wow,
0: that's very sad. So,
1: you know, and, and we've asked that question, I even asked that of Congressman Kennedy when I had met with him because mm-hmm. Grant Ronebeck was basically assassinated, shot point blank in his face at a convenience store here in Mesa, and I showed him Grant Ronebeck's picture and I said, you know, this young man was assassinated. And, you know, your family has experience with those type of situations and went on to show him a few more pictures and then ask him the same question. And, yeah, he didn't like that either. It's reality. You know, and these politicians need to realize you forced us to give up a child Mm -hmm. by your lackadaisical attention to things that should have changed decades ago. We're just collateral damage to them.
0: There is a candidate in Arizona, and I saw a story yesterday where she had said, if she's elected, she's going to uh, put armed officers on the border and uh, try to prevent the sorts of things. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the candidacy or the candidate. I was happy to hear that because I really do think it's time for people to take serious action and for people to be making promises like this during campaigns and then following through.
1: Absolutely. And, and I'm not aware of, of who it would be. Was it on a...
0: Her name. But I did read hmm. the story yesterday and I thought, you know, that that's really sounds like what we need is some people to be very bold about this.
1: Absolutely. Governor Ducey should have done this, you know, when this whole thing started with the Biden administration, we have the authority on a state level to close our borders and to turn everybody around. Yuma is being overrun. Yuma, Arizona. I went down there with Andy Biggs and, uh, you know, met with the Border Patrol. And I mean, we actually picked up at this opening in the wall there by Yuma because the majority of Arizona is a barbed wire border. That's it. 320 miles of barbed wire is part of our border. Airline tickets from Brazil, um, you know, their identification, because they drop all that because they don't want that kind of identification on them. It's 150 countries, I think, that have come through the border there at Yuma. I'm actually running for Arizona state representatives. I am really hoping Done a lot of research, Oklahoma passed a remittance tax and. 2015, a 1% tax on money that leaves our country and goes to foreign countries because a lot of these illegals come here. That's their main goal. Come here, make good money, send money home to their families. You know, they end up buying businesses or, you know, a nice house and, and, you know, then they'll go back there eventually. That first year Oklahoma had it in 2015, they, brought in $15 million to the state of Oklahoma. Of course, there's many more illegals in this country now than there was in 2015, but I want to get a remittance tax passed in Arizona. During the pandemic in 2020, $84 billion left our country in remittances. $84 billion left Mm -hmm. our economy. And if there was a one or 2% tax on a state level on that money leaving, guess who would ultimately end up paying for the border wall in Arizona? be illegal
0: exactly as president Trump stated.
1: And so, you know, we don't want a remittance tax on a federal level. We don't want the federal government having their hands on mm-hmm. that money. We want it on a state level. And if every state would pass it if every state, send a percentage of what they got out of their remittance tax to the border States, to the upkeep of the wall. This is something that could happen relatively quickly.
0: You had talked earlier about sanctuary cities and you talked about North Carolina and the law there. Are there any States that are doing an admirable job in dealing with illegal aliens and this problem of immigration that that should be modeled by other States?
1: Florida. They've got a governor who really understands the issues and has, he had one of my angel moms down there who lives there, Kayan Michael. Um, she's running for office too, for Florida state rep had her and her husband come and testify and, uh, passed an anti-sanctuary law. They've passed E-Verify as mandatory. A lot of states do have E-Verify. They don't follow through and make sure that it's mandatory and that employers are fined or sanctioned for not providing that. He's one of the ones that really stands out. You know, Governor Abbott is doing the best he can. You know, he was buying surplus, federal surplus, um, had purchased a lot of the Phil Ballards that were laid in the desert of Arizona rotting because Biden stopped the construction of the wall. And they had many, many panels of those ballards. And so he started buying it as federal surplus. And once the Biden administration got word that he was going to be using it to continue building the wall, they have now prohibited him from buying any more ballards. You know, he's doing what he can. Not everybody's perfect, but when you have a governor who tries to do something and and positive and, and moving forward to stop a problem that the federal government has created, you know, you got to give them kudos.
0: Absolutely true. Marianne, if people want to get more information on Angel Families, or if they would like to find out information about your political campaign and and assist you in that way, tell us how they can do that.
1: Um, They can go to our website, angelfamilies.org, and donate to us there. The money that we gather there, it's there for Travel, like if we're called on to, to come and testify, I mean, that's not happening now, but we do travel to different states and go speak at events and bring awareness to the problem. My political website is mendoza dot com. The word for is spelled out. It's not a, a number for things are going very, very well. I'm turning in all my petitions with signatures on Monday and going to be on the ballot. And I, I'm running with another conservative mom, her son was injured in Iraq. We're unopposed on the Republican side. So, you know, we'll pass hopefully through the primaries with flying um, colors and make it to the general and, and kick some hiney and make a difference, you know, two conservative mothers and American mothers who really want to protect our constitutional right and secure our border and back the blue and protect our children's education. I think it's very important, the big stop on an Angel family front and not really being able to do much, you know, in a government help type situation like we were doing with Trump. Cayenne, uh, who's there in Florida, myself really felt like now's the time to stand up on a state level and try and make the changes that we need in our state.
0: Marianne Mendoza, I'm so pleased for what you're doing. I, I have great sympathy for you and your family, the loss of your son, Brandon, but you've certainly gone forward to help other people and try to prevent the situation from happening again. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. I appreciate you having me, Rob. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time...